Our summaries this week contain two criminal law cases, one from the Arkansas Supreme Court and one from the Arkansas Court of Appeals. In Franklin v. State, 2024, Arc 9, the Arkansas Supreme Court affirmed convictions of driving while intoxicated and refusing testing and rejected arguments it was error to deny a mistrial motion. The court reasoned one reference to inadmissible preliminary breath testing was invited by defense counsel's own questioning, and the second was unforeseeably brought before the jury by a prosecution witness. Justice Highland wrote, quote, At the jury trial, Deputy Oswald testified on direct examination to the aforementioned observations that led him to believe Franklin was intoxicated. On cross-examination, the defense specifically questioned Deputy Oswald regarding the tests both offered and refused by Franklin after his arrival at the detention center. Deputy Oswald testified that after Franklin refused a breath test, he was offered a urine test, to which he refused. His refusal of the urine test was indicated on the Statement of Rights form already admitted into evidence. Defense counsel continued, and the following exchange, in pertinent part, took place. Defense, and based upon that suspicion, you removed him to the police station for a formal test, a scientific or a test that could be admitted into evidence. Now, he didn't take a test, right? Oswald, correct. Defense, you testified that you took him to the police station for a certified test because you had a suspicion that he was intoxicated. Oswald, correct. Defense, now, what happened at the station that changed your suspicion to a firm conviction enough that you wrote to him a citation for DWI? That is a simple question, son. Oswald, I mean, it's not admissible, but it was .17, the PBT. End of quote. A mistrial motion followed, which was denied, and counsel declined for the trial court to give a cautionary instruction. The next state witness testified by interjecting into his testimony that the law enforcement office asked help in administering the PBT test. A second mistrial motion was made and denied. As to the first mistrial motion, the Court of Appeals reasoned this was invited error brought about by the defendant's attorney. There was no ground for reversal. In the second instance, the reference to the PBT test was not in response to a prosecutor's question, so there was no error. Quote, While this statement differs from that of Deputy Oswald in that it was a spontaneous response to a question by the state, not the defense, Gonzalez's answer was not a foreseeable response to the prosecution's question and cannot be said to have been deliberately induced by the prosecution. Additionally, and more importantly, the utterance that a PBT was given without mention of the actual results is a harmless error, if an error at all. There was already ample evidence before the jury that supported Franklin's guilt of DWI, regardless of the mention of the PBT. Franklin admitted that he had been drinking, smelled like alcohol, exhibited physical indicators of intoxication, and had both open and closed containers of beer in his car. The mention of the PBT was not so prejudicial that justice could not be served by continuing the trial. End of quote. 
In dissent, Justice Baker disagreed that defense counsel opened the door. Quote, The aim of defense counsel's line of questioning was both to elicit testimony regarding what happened at the detention center to further convince law enforcement of Franklin's guilt and to carefully limit the scope of Deputy Oswald's testimony to only the admissible test results, if any. Further, it is undisputed that the PBT was administered to Franklin at the scene well before Franklin was transported to the detention center. Therefore, it is clear that Deputy Oswald's testimony was not a legitimate response to defense counsel's line of questioning. The flaw in the majority's position is amplified by the fact that all parties involved understood the results of Franklin's PBT to be inadmissible. In spite of this understanding, as well as the state's pretrial directive to its witnesses not to get into the PBT, Deputy Oswald prefaced the disclosure of those very results by admitting, I mean, it's not admissible, but... I cannot agree that such a deliberate disclosure of inadmissible evidence constitutes a legitimate response, particularly when it was non-responsive to defense counsel's line of questioning. End of quote. This case came to the court on a petition for review. The Court of Appeals reversed, but its opinion is vacated in granting a petition for review. End of decision. In Johnson v. State, 2024, ARC App 56, the Arkansas Court of Appeals affirmed a conviction for kidnapping and explained the difference between restraining a victim's liberty that is sufficient for kidnapping as opposed to that in committing the crime in this case of attempted rape. Defendant appealed the kidnapping conviction and unsuccessfully argued any restraint was a part of the attempted rape. The problem with his argument was he separately locked the door to confine the victim and prevent others from discovering the crime in progress. Judge Verdon explained, quote, At the July 19 bench trial, the victim testified that on September 7, she was working at the Dollar Plus Market when Johnson knocked on the door two minutes before the store opened. The victim unlocked the door early and let him in. Security footage of the store taken from different angles was played for the court. In the video, Johnson is shown chatting with the victim at the counter for about a minute, going to get a beer, bringing the beer to the counter and paying, then walking to the front door and deadbolting it. The video shows the victim pressing the silent alarm button, then running behind the counter. In the video, Johnson is shown walking around the counter toward the victim. Johnson grabs the victim and tries to restrain her while she struggles toward the silent alarm button and pushes it a second time. In the video, Johnson's pants are partially down and he can be seen pulling up the victim's skirt and grabbing her while she tries to run away. The victim is shown running to the door with Johnson chasing her. The victim can be seen repeatedly attempting to open the door as Johnson restrains her and prevents her from leaving. The victim's testimony matched the video evidence. She testified that when Johnson locked the deadbolt, she pressed the silent alarm button. Johnson cornered her behind the counter, pulled up her skirt, and groped her. She testified that she fought him off, and he again tried to grab her when she was trying to get out of the door. When she was able to unlock and open the door, she ran to the restaurant next door and called 911. End of quote. Length of Restraint Necessary for Kidnapping 
The defendant argued that the length of time to support kidnapping was insufficient and was the same as that for the rape conviction. The Court of Appeals examined the record in this case and concluded it supported kidnapping. Quote, A person commits the offense of kidnapping if, without consent, the person restrains another person so as to interfere substantially with the other person's liberty with the purpose of engaging in sexual intercourse, deviant sexual activity, or sexual contact with the other person. Art Code and Section 511-102-A5 On appeal, Johnson asserts that when he locked the deadbolt, a simple lever that did not require a key to lock or unlock, he did not commit a secondary act separate from the attempted rape. Johnson contends that the act of locking the door was part and parcel of the restraint required to rape a person. Essentially, he contends that the victim could and did simply turn the lever. Thus, his locking the door could not be considered an additional restraint constituting a substantial interference with the victim's liberty. We disagree and affirm. In Arkansas, it is only when the restraint exceeds that normally incidental to the crime that the rapist should also be subject to prosecution for kidnapping. See Summerlin v. State, 296 Art 347. Among the factors that have been considered by courts in determining whether a separate kidnapping convention is supportable include whether the movement or confinement, one, prevented the victim from summoning assistance, two, lessened the defendant's risk of detection, or three, created a significant danger or increased the victim's risk of harm. End of quote. In this case, more restraint occurred than the attempted rape, reasoned the Court of Appeals. Quote, Here, the victim testified that as soon as Johnson locked the door, she was afraid and pressed the silent alarm. After locking the door, Johnson walked around the counter she was standing behind, blocked her path, and physically restrained her. Locking the door was clearly an additional restraint separate from the attempted rape. End of quote. In this case, defendant committed an additional act of restraint by locking the door because, quote, by locking the door, Johnson prevented the victim from summoning assistance and lessened the risk of detection. Johnson placed an additional obstacle between any police officers responding to the silent alarm and the victim. Also, by locking the door, Johnson lessened the risk of detection. Any person walking by would have been prevented from entering the store and discovering the attempted rape in progress. End of quote. Attempted rape. The next argument was whether there was sufficient evidence of attempted rape. Quote, Johnson took the stand and testified that he never lifted the victim's skirt. He explained that he relocked the deadbolt after she let him in because she had opened the door early for him. Johnson explained that when they began discussing her dissatisfaction with her marriage, he became sexually aroused. He testified that at the time of the incident, he was off his medication, which caused him to act out, and he tried to, quote, grab her butt. Johnson stated that he exposed his penis to the victim to ascertain if she was sexually attracted to him. The circuit court found beyond a reasonable doubt that Johnson was guilty of both kidnapping and attempted rape. End of quote. Self-representation. Defendant argued that he wanted to represent himself instead of having a public defender. The trial court denied the request, 
and the Court of Appeals rejected arguments that the state violated his Sixth Amendment right to self-representation and noted his initial request was equivocal. Quote, A defendant may invoke his right to defend himself, provided that, one, the request to waive the right to counsel is unequivocal and timely asserted, two, there has been a knowing and intelligent waiver, and three, the defendant has not engaged in conduct that would prevent the fair and orderly exposition of the issues. The state is correct that Johnson's request left doubt that waiver of counsel for his entire bench trial is what he wanted. Johnson initially requested to represent himself by stating, Before you make your decision, I want to represent myself too before you make your decision. This initial request is equivocal because he expressed his desire to represent himself alongside counsel. The second time the subject was raised, Johnson only referred to his earlier request to represent himself, reminding the court of the previous hearing, and again he focused solely on the paperwork he was concerned about. In this instance, Johnson did not request that the court allow him to represent himself. The subject of self-representation was raised on the day of trial. Johnson requested that the court look at some rare and important information and reminded the court that he had previously asked to represent himself. Johnson stated that he wanted to represent himself in presenting this. The court explained, What we're here for today is for three bench trials, and denied the request, concluding that Johnson had not expressed a desire to represent yourself on these three bench trials today. I think we need to move forward with the bench trials. Thus, the circuit court determined that Johnson failed to make a clear, unequivocal statement that he wanted to represent himself for his trial, and Johnson did not challenge the court's determination. End of quote. The Court of Appeals further noted that defendant previously disrupted the proceedings. Quote, Additionally, Johnson engaged in conduct that would prevent the fair and orderly exposition of the issues. At the two pretrial hearings, Johnson demonstrated an inability to stay on the subject and interrupted the proceedings with off-topic statements. He inappropriately referred to the court as Mommy and Judge K, sang, and discussed his mental health when that was not the subject at issue. As stated above, the defendant requesting to represent himself, who engages in conduct that would prevent the fair and orderly exposition of the issues, may be denied the request for that reason. End of quote. End of decision.